You are now listening to Asking for a Friend with Talk Doc, sharing insights through real, honest, and practical ways to improve your communication and relationships. Featuring your hosts, Dr. Pamela Kreiser, Meredith Edwards, and Taylor Polendo. Today, we're going to explore the topic of intent and communication with Taylor and Meredith. And before we get into that discussion, I want to share some of my thoughts about this topic. Now, this topic is central to interpersonal communication. It simply explores the idea of whether you meant to do something communicatively. Was it your aim? Was it what you planned? Was it what you intended? From the outset, this is a complicated topic because it references your underlying views about communication. So here's the question. Do you believe that there is intent behind every kind of message and communication? Or do you believe it is mundane, habitual, and often absent of intent? Or do you believe something in between? Your overarching perspective likely varies across contexts and relationships because you and I are making judgments about intention all the time. For many years, I played competitive tennis. And one time I was playing this women's doubles tournament with my friend Lynn. Now, we didn't normally play together, but we decided to play this tournament. So in the opening round, we were somehow really well-coordinated, and we played an amazing first set and won 6-0. Now, our opponents weren't very happy about that. In fact, one of the opponents named Dana, the better player on the opposing team, she was getting pretty angry, and you could see her frustration. She would swear, make comments under her breath. We could see her starting to boil. I go to Lynn to have our typical baseline chat, and I hear the sound of a swirling racket in the air, like a kind of sound. And then a crash of the racket landing like a foot away from me. I turned around thinking, are you kidding me? Were you trying to hit me with your racket? I turned around with the glare and I went up to the net and I looked her straight in the eye and I said, did you really just throw your racket at me? This is not going to go like this. By that time, all four of us were at the net with our hands on our hips. And immediately the referee runs around the corner and says, hey, Ladies, is everything okay? And I turn and say, she threw her racket at us because she's so pissed about losing the first set. And there was silence. Oh no, Dana said, it was just an accident. I was tapping my racket on my shoe and I lost my grip on the racket. I was stunned. (laughs) Really? From the baseline, I'm thinking? That's very hard to believe that it would go 50 feet. There was more silence. And then Dana reiterated, well, it was just an accident. So the judge kind of looks a little perplexed and suggests that we just resume our play. But honestly, I couldn't get it out of my mind. Did she actually mean to hit me with her racket? Do adults act like that? Was she really trying to harm me? I couldn't believe it. So Lynn and I start playing the second set and we start losing. I just couldn't get my mind into the match. I kept thinking, could you actually lose your grip and have a racket go 50 feet? No, I would think, no, she meant to do it. No, maybe she didn't mean to do it. And I kept debating it back and forth. Finally, Lynn comes up to me. We hadn't even talked about the event. And she comes up and she goes, hey, she meant it. So get your head back in the game. She was trying to hit you. I remember thinking, oh my gosh, because I had spent so much time thinking and rethinking about the incident that I wasn't thinking about our second set. Needless to say, we lost the second set, but we did pull it together in the third. So that was a good thing. This story illustrates how much perception of intention affects our perceptions. Um, What you and I elect to believe about intention affects everything. Unfortunately, there's a widespread myth out there that messages are either intentional or unintentional. 
Some say one or the other. However, I would argue that that's an oversimplification. Certainly, I've been caught in this kind of thinking. I mean, certainly I was in the tennis match, right? But having only two categories of intent, I seriously doubt that. I believe nearly every interpersonal construct is more likely to be on a continuum rather than in two fixed categories. The question is, why is intent such a big deal? In fact, it's interesting how it shows up in our interactions. Sometimes we hear speakers saying things to reinforce their intentions. They say, yeah, you're damn right I meant it. Or sometimes speakers will qualify their intentions. I only meant that because you said it to me. Or sometimes speakers will minimize responsibility, saying, well, if you choose to take it that way, or I didn't mean to hurt you, or maybe might even, like in my story, deny responsibility entirely and say, you know, it was an accident and you're just sensitive and I didn't mean it. Now, a receiver might actually speak about intention as well. A question of intent might sound like, did you really mean that? Or we might assign intentions saying, did you mean to hurt me? Now, as we think about intent that comes up in our conversation, we want to dig into the theory. And we know numerous scholars have written about the subject of intent and communication. One of the most important journal articles on this topic is by Glenn Stamp and Mark Knapp. Now, both of these scholars happen to be Longhorns, so go Longhorns. In their critical work, they explore the nuances of intention in interpersonal communication. They suggest that one could look at intention from the perspective of the speaker or the encoder, the listener, the decoder, or from an interactional perspective. And ultimately, they advocate the interactional perspective, saying, if you think about the interactional perspective, it really encompasses the speaker and the listener and what they can negotiate together. Stamp and Knapp make this conclusion. They say, quote, for interactional participants, the most important aspect of intentionality might not be what the encoder really intended to accomplish with the particular message or what attributes a decoder makes about the message, but how the interactants in the relationship ultimately negotiate these two perspectives. In other words, it's not what you mean or what you thought it meant. It's what you negotiate about it. Years after Stamp and Knapp's important article, a group of experimental social psychologists led by Dr. Albright explored interpersonal intent in their experiments, and they ran some experiments involving friends and outside observers. They, too, found the interactional perspective to be superior. They concluded that our understanding of intention is best in the context of a relationship. They also found that friends are better at identifying intent and coordinating intent than were outside observers. So what we're saying is we're far off better at assigning intent when we're inside a relationship and we're better in that way than someone who would be from the outside listening to our conversation and determining what intent was going on. In interaction, intent seems to be easier to manage when we're communicating with people with whom we share a context. In other words, since we're in an intimate relationship, I have the more likelihood of knowing what you meant by something. Alternatively, when we're interacting with people who we don't share a context with, we become less accurate. When a stranger cuts me off on the freeway, I have less likelihood matching their perception to mine. Did they really mean to cut me off? Were they distracted or was it something else that was going on? So it makes sense that you and I would be better at predicting intent from let's say our relationship partner or our best friends or our family members than we would from people we don't actually know. Hawker and Wilmot add another critical point of view to this conversation. 
they suggest that perceptions of intent drive our reactions. Now, obviously, my tennis story illustrates this. How I perceived the racket throwing as an accident or not drove my response. So how you classify or attribute or determine intent will likely impact your felt experience. The key word is what you believe. So if you believe it was an accident, you might have less impact. And you might say to yourself, well, it was an accident and everybody makes mistakes. I'll brush it off. However, if you believe it was intentional, you might feel a greater impact from that message. This was, after all, done on purpose. You meant to do it to me. Now, even worse are those messages that are not only intentional, but premeditated. Not only did the speaker intend to say the hurtful message, they actually planned to do it in advance. This is likely, according to Hugger and Wilmot, the most serious of the offenses. So you didn't even accidentally hurt me. You meant to do it. But Hawker and Wilmot also remind us that intent doesn't equal impact. In fact, they argue your intent in a conflict almost never equals the impact that it has on another person. For example, someone might say something hurtful to you and then claim, oh, it was an accident. Well, will we ever know whether that's true or not? No, we won't. But Hawker and Wilmot say the impact is still there whether you say it was an accident or not. So in other words, whether you meant it or whether it was an accident, doesn't actually matter if feelings are hurt, if someone's harmed by the message. So what do we do about intent? Hawker and Wilmot say, focus on the impact. My brother used to say the message received is the one that counts. Given the research, focusing on impact makes perfect sense. And this might in fact be the best way to negotiate with our relationship partners when we have a battle of intent. Maybe the only place of agreement where we can settle upon. After all, we can debate intent forever, whether you meant it or whether you didn't mean it or whether you implied it or half meant it. I can get to all these conversations, but focusing on impact brings us back to reality. So whether we say it's an accident or I didn't mean it, or you can choose to take it that way, or don't be so sensitive, all of those now sound like sidestepping responsibility. We've all heard someone say that, right? But the message received is the one that counts. It doesn't matter whether it's an accident or whether you meant it or whether you think I'm sensitive. If I'm hurt, I'm hurt. In the situation of a car collision, we could debate whether the person meant to cause the collision or whether it was an accident. But in the end, it's the damage that matters. What kinds of damage occurred? What was the extent of the damage? And now what do we do about it? Now, you heard earlier that Stamp and Nap suggest that we have to negotiate those things. So instead of negotiating what the intent is, whether you meant it or not, um, what the research tends to say is we should talk about what the impact is, and that's what we should negotiate. And that's where I believe relationship partners can come together to repair hurtful messages, beginning with the place of impact. So Taylor and Meredith, we have a lot to talk about today, obviously. Where does this show up for either of you? I initially thought that this is the start to all fights, whether they meant it or not and how you took it. Does it mean then that like communicating clearly falls on the shoulders of the communicator if they're the one that is communicating the message? So whether or not you communicate clearly falls on them, but then what we do with that message then falls on the receiver. So like how we respond with our emotions and how like you say, oh, we're sensitive. 
doesn't give us the license to just slap you across the face. How we respond is on our shoulders, but the message is therefore on the communicator's shoulders. I think so, but I hear kind of the opposite in most conversation. I hear the speaker kind of sidestepping the responsibility and saying, hey, don't take it that way. Like, don't be so sensitive. I heard that a lot growing up. Don't be so sensitive. Well, obviously it hurt me. So we would want to pause on that. That kind of point of view, I would say Taylor is, is sort of, it would be ideal if speakers took responsibility and listeners were balancing their sensitivities, but it's not how it works out, right? As you point out, it's the beginning of all conflict. So how does it play out then for you? Well, this just happened with my husband and I like a couple of weeks ago when I told him we were doing this podcast and I said, talking about the podcast and he responds like, I'm just so glad you're doing something. I'm like, wow, he thinks I don't, I don't do enough. That's the message I received. Like, I don't do enough. I'm not a good wife. I don't, I'm a good mom. Like all these meanings just came floating in Mm -hmm. and I sat on it. I didn't respond. I sat on it for like a week. And then I finally went back. I'm like, you know, that's how I took that. Right. When you said that, he's like, oh, wow. Like definitely not what I meant. What I meant was you get to support me in my creative endeavors. And I'm just so excited to do the same for you. But then what I left with was it, what it really says more, it says more what I think about myself than what he said, Mm. I believe about myself, Mm -hmm. which is to be also the start of all our fights. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, people still say hurtful things, but what's so tricky about that is how many points of view that exist. Cause he's all the way on the spectrum of, I mean, to be supportive. And you're like, you're absolutely going against me and criticizing my inactivity or not valued activity or whatever you think I'm doing. Yeah. So that's so interesting. The research says we can negotiate through that. So did you find yourself getting to a place after you talked it through? Yeah. I, what I came down to is like, what do I believe about him? And in any time of insecurity of, am I doing enough? Am I good enough in these roles? He's always been so reassuring and very affirming. So I'm like, what do I believe? Do I trust him in that? And do I believe what he tells me? Do I have faith in my partner? Mm -hmm. So the message that I was receiving and what I know to believe about him were in conflict. Yeah. So that's why I went back to clarify, is that what you meant? I love that because I think that's how we can actually manage our relationships on this other level that's really effective and say, wait, what do I know about them actually like character wise? Yeah. You, we have these little problems interactively. And so I love that idea that we say, oh no, I'm going to, to go to the person and, and the character and kind of reflect back on all this other history rather than just go catastrophic on one comment. But for like a week, I was like, wow, he just doesn't think I do anything then, huh? Isn't that- and it's easy to build that theory, right? Yeah. I was say, isn't that funny? Because when I have been in my relationships and they ask me, oh, it's like a young relationship that you admire and why I've always said, Taylor, about you and your husband, because they just have this belief that neither would, you know, intend to hurt the other. And that's something that's so hard to totally lean into is like, I believe this person wouldn't intend to hurt me. So that's humanizing you as a friend that you had a moment. I believe that about Ralph. I don't know if I believe that about myself, but I appreciate that. 
I, I just think that's such a great strategy. And too often we go catastrophic the other way. So that's kind of a big takeaway, I think, to say, wait, so if I get this heavy impact, like you're describing, and, and I'm receiving this and I'm feeling this big impact, one of the ways to manage it is to go back to the relationship itself, the structure and say, wait a minute, that isn't this. I would say the same thing's true when sometimes you'll hear like a random accusation about somebody or you'll hear that they have done something. Someone will do a rumor and say, hey, I saw somebody not with their spouse over, you know, at this restaurant or whatever. And you have to think, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm not going to just rush to believe that. I know this person doesn't do things like that. So I'm going to just go with like the person they are and approach it that way rather than believing any old thing. Mm. And that's kind of a challenge, but I'm actually very impressed by your tendency to do that because I think it's a real solution that people can do. I mean, it seemed easier to do it for my spouse. I don't know that I'd be that generous for my friend. Oh, they've always not liked me or they've always, you know, I believe a lot differently. Yeah. I think about other people. Or maybe that's just what I believe about myself and I expect them to believe that. Yeah, but that that's so much trust that you have as a foundation. So I guess you don't need to do the podcast anymore because you've got it all down. I'm fixed. <laughs> I don't need to learn ever. So growing up, people said to me, don't be so sensitive. And I remember not figuring out how to manage hurtful messages as a kid. And so it took some time. But I remember a lot of people just dismissing, going, just don't take it that way. It's like really hard to just not do that. Did you ever have somebody say, oh, you hurt your own feelings? No. <laughs> that was my favorite. How does that work? I, yeah. Family member that you would say, that really hurt my feelings. You're too sensitive. You hurt your own feelings. Like you let your own feelings get hurt. <laughs> and, then, and then how do you decipher their intention on that one? I would say run. <laughs> <laughs> Only because it's like not just a sidestep. It's like a complete removal of responsibility. It's all you and you're crazy. Oh, yeah. Also, I feel like we've completely lost the fact that being sensitive comes with like a lot of positive and it's only viewed as very negative. And I remember seeing a friend, she's very sensitive. And at first it kind of bugged me, like, no, I'm not always mad at you. And no, all these things she kind of believed. But then it gave her such empathy and the ability to like read a room and go to the lost soul and feel very aware of other people's emotions. I thought that was really powerful. I don't know why it's always a negative. Yeah, I think that is powerful. I think for anyone listening that has been told that you're being too sensitive, it's commenting on your extra special skills. They're needed. So what would you say about all this, Meredith? When when you're sharing, it, it makes me remember that I tend not wanting to own it, but definitely being a person that says, oh, no, no, I didn't mean like that. And when I say that, listening to you, I, I hear what that means so much different than what I think it means in the moment. Like I recently was explaining to my partner, like, I think we were in the car and I was like, don't you have the turn there? Or don't pick up your phone. There could be a cop or like something. And I'm thinking, oh, I'm looking out for this person. And then he stops and it's like, hey, like you're super short with me, this whole car ride. And I immediately just went into, oh, no, no, I didn't mean it like that. And I'm thinking like, oh. I'm going to help correct the story he told wrong in his head. I didn't mean it like that. I was just trying to look out for him. I'm going to help him now. Instead of just going, oh, this person that's important to me in my life, which in your example, your intimate relationships, those really close people, my partner, for example, felt like I was being super just critical, like for a whole car ride. And instead of going, shoot, oh, dang, it's super not that difficult to go, I'm sorry. 
for making you feel like I was being short. You know, I could adjust my tone a little, which is really hard because I tend to not hear my own tone of voice. I just went into thinking it was a good thing to tell him. I didn't mean it like that. So my challenge in this thing is, what's another phrase for saying that without saying that? (laughs) Your goal. Yeah. Or how do I get out of my own head by thinking I have to correct something relates, I think, Taylor, to what you were saying is, what does it say about me that I can't allow him to get his feelings hurt by me? Because then that means I'm mean. Mm. Or I said something in a way, they took it in a way didn't mean, so I need to correct that instead of just kind of leaning in to how they received my message for just a hot second. Yeah. Because I'd like somebody to do that for me. And so then if you lean in, you don't have to decide who's right or wrong or whether you meant it or not. You lean into the impact and just explore what your partner's feeling. I was saying it it makes me think about the image that you created earlier, which is that what the person speaking intends to say doesn't always, maybe sometimes it doesn't always just directly equal the impact that the person's hearing. Like the mouth doesn't equal what the hearer hears all the time. Mm-hmm. And that's super hard, especially as somebody that's, for me, it's like, oh, I must communicate in a way that you don't feel hurt by me. And if I did it, then I just have to stop that and correct it. But instead of just, for me, it's that image of leaning in to somebody saying it happened. So I have to accept that I'm human. And sometimes my tone is wrong. And I was short with this person in the car. And I just need to say, okay, I'm sorry to that. And then it's not about being right or wrong, but about keeping moving forward. Yeah. And that kind of goes to the bigger math, like we were talking about with Taylor, the calculating the overall relationship a little more broadly and saying, wait, this is someone I care about. This is someone I trust. This is someone I believe in. So I'm going to tolerate this place that I don't want to do and entertain that you might be hurt and maybe explore it and maybe own the fact that I might've done that. I, by the way, hate doing that, taking responsibility. That's what I hate. Hey, that's so much. I don't want to do that, but here's what I find. You get into the quandary. I didn't mean it, but you're taking it that way. So now what do we do? Because it's like a tie. Yeah. I didn't mean it. It's totally a tie. You're taking it that way. And you know what breaks the tie? The impact. I think you have to go with what's felt. So in this example, for me in that moment where somebody, I say something, I guess my tone is sharp or whatever it is, or whoever you're talking to, this person's close to you and they respond like, hey, hey, your tone of voice or you're being sharp. Instead of reacting with like, oh, I didn't mean that and trying to just cut him off. How do we lean in and listen to that moment better? How do I help prevent the car accident? <laughs> <laughs> oh, and you want to prevent the relationship accident too. It seems to me, if you're going to focus on the impact, you have to understand what's being felt. You could say, how do I sound to you? Oh, I have to ask that. Rough. No, I'm serious. That's really, that's a really good question. So ask how do I, like, I'm actually trying to remember this. How do I sound to you? Or how are you hearing me? What are you hearing that you don't like? Oh, that's a good one. It makes me think of when you're younger and your mom says, you like roll your eyes or you make a face. And someone's like, stop, like wipe that face, like that facial expression off your face. And you're like, I'm not doing anything. And then my mom used to say, I'm looking at your face. Like I see the face you're making. You don't see the face you're making. It almost makes me think somebody's hearing my tone of voice, even though I don't hear it. So what are you hearing from me? And how do I sound to you? How does it sound? How do I sound to you right now? Oh my gosh. And then believe them when they tell you. Well, here's the part that sucks right there is the bravery you have to put on to ask that question. To Taylor's point, if it's housed in a trusting relationship, it's going to go way better. 
than if it's not. Mm. But that goes with the research, right? Because we said, hey, when we're outside observers, we don't get it. When we're not in a close relationship with people, we don't line up. So you're not going to do a very good job if you, let's say you cut someone off parking in the 7-Eleven parking lot and you go in to get a Slurpee and you see the, the other driver in there and they say, what's your problem? You don't have a trusting relationship with them. So your ability to manage what was meant, whether I meant to cut you off or not, is really limited without relationship mm. knowledge, right? Yeah. We would say, yes, you can say, how do you hear me? Or how does this sound to you? But we would only do that in a trusting relationship. We don't do that at the 7-Eleven. Yeah. yeah. Because we get maybe in a fight at the 7-Eleven. That's what's really scary to me, though, is looking back on a lot of relationships that I didn't go back to for clarification, whether I was hurt or maybe they were hurt and how many relationships that might've cost me over time. Yeah. It's tough to be brave. I mean, I think that's where we get, we've talked about the one by one, maybe we'll do that every time, but talk about the idea of those people who we care about the most and saying, let's try to be brave there. And I guess what I'd also say, Meredith, to your question about how does that sound to ask about that moment? How does, how was that impact felt for you? I think we have to practice it in our safest spaces before it becomes a normal part of our communication at a wider scale, Mm -hmm. because we have, so it's kind of dangerous. So like, if I ask that to someone who I don't trust, my propensity for getting hurt and never trying that strategy again is higher. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. But I would say like with your closest relationship partner, your best friend, trying it there might make some sense. I had this other uh, thought in my head about just because we're going now we're shifting into not close relationships, but the more like the stranger or the person on the highway or something. That's a really good example I talked about with someone that cuts you off that I use all the time with my clients. I actually have this former client that was in a treatment program for substance abuse and he's supposed to graduate on, let's call it like October 1st. And I call the program like a week before, like, how's he doing? He's been doing really well. It's a six month program. It's long. And they tell me, oh, you're never going to believe this. He stole from the cafeteria. I'm like, he did what? He stole from the cafeteria. So I asked to speak with them privately. I come to find out he was offered a chili by the chef, the guy that was cooking. And he thought it was just part of the food. So he took it his intention was like the, the, he'd even told me, he's like, I, I didn't know I was stealing. Like I, the cook offered me a chili and I ate it, but the worker saw me do it and thought I was trying to steal food. So it's interesting how much in that example in a really like intense example, they didn't know each other, but he's in this program. They thought he intended to steal. He thought he was just eating a chili. They extend his program by a week, which by a week seems, okay, seven days, not the big deal, right? But when you're in it for six months, And to work with a client like that and be like, please don't leave early, still graduate, still be successful, you know, it can totally shift an outcome. And it's almost like I was thinking of that and the car example thinking it's almost better for our brains in those examples to lean with the strangers into a more positive perception. Because if I think about every person that cuts me off in the freeway and get upset with them, I'm going to have a shit day like upstairs. I'm going to be mad at everybody. (laughs) So you have this phrase, the world is out to get me. Oh my gosh. Have you ever talked to somebody like that? Relationships with people like that are exhausting. I love that, that takeaway, Meredith, the idea that we would 
because we don't have the close relationship, we would favor a positive intent and just leave it at that and say, because I don't know. I've done that before when I've been driving where I like, they cut me off probably because they're dealing with something really hard. And when you have that point of view on the freeway, I know everyone's like, there's no way that's true on the 405. You try it. Yeah. But if you try it, then all of a sudden you have this different view about everybody, honestly. Yeah. And so I love that idea. And I also think that the evidence bears that out in the research, because remember they said outsiders don't get it. Well, who was in your story at the kitchen? Who's the guy that didn't get it? The outsider. Yeah, exactly. He's stealing. Yeah, exactly. And I, oh, I'm so upset for that. Or I think about that. The reason I would, I want to be somebody that leans to that positive way of thinking is because it makes my day better. So it's almost selfish. Think about if you're just creating two stories for a second. If you're somebody that's, if you're listening to this in the car, if you're listening to it on a walk and the, then it yields the pedestrian or whatever it is, it's a quick response to be just super frustrated, right? In traffic, it's just natural. But it's so much more relaxing to allow that lean for the, "Eh, life has, who knows what's going on with this person? You know, as long as everybody's okay, nobody got hurt. It's like, I don't know what's going on with you. You're having a bad day. You're not paying attention, whatever. I notice the day being better when I lean to the positive direction. Mm -hmm. I like it. That sounds really freaking hard. (laughs) It reminds me of Brene Brown. I think it's uh, Rising Strong. And she says, it's better to believe everyone is doing the best they can do. But the reason that's so hard is because we don't believe we're doing the best we can do. Like exactly why I'm like, he thinks I'm not a good wife because I see 10 ways I could be a better wife. Ooh, you know what that made me think? Oh my gosh, that was so good. That made me think about, I don't know if you guys are like this or I'm just a terrible person, but I'm so much more filled with grace with the stranger that cuts me off than I am with my partner. Yes. My partner as years of kindness with me, right? Mm-hmm. But this one thing that they said, they intended to be so mean, you know? But somebody could just straight go right in front of me, make me slam on my brakes. I'm like, ah, something maybe would have happened to them earlier today. <laughs> what is that? Yeah, but, but maybe we have to apply the grace across all of it then and say, don't just give the grace to the strangers that you don't have a relationship with. Give the grace to everybody, including the most important and that seems to be a very big deal. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it, to me, it sounds like it, that relationship doesn't matter. So it's easy to just like, oh, whatever. What I think about with this a lot is like what happens in a fight? Say you're with your partner and you say something mean. I feel like when I'm fighting, I switch into this mode and, of like unconsciousness where I switch into winning. And of course, in a marriage, if you're fighting to win, everyone's a loser. There are no winners in fighting and marriage, but I feel like there's something where our intent, I don't mean to be mean or say something mean, but in my head, I feel like I switch into like, well, I'll say this point. And really then there's less dialogue and less listening. And it's just a monologue at that point. I feel like there's this switch where I'm like, I just got to win. And I don't know if that's because I took a lot of debate or what it is, but (laughs) it's not, it's not gone very well for me. I'll just say that. Yeah, I think your point about how it over time, it turns into more blaming or one person speaking like that kind of thing goes against this idea of asking for more information. When I was saying, how does it sound to you? Or what do you think you're hearing? Or how do you feel when I say things like this is to totally entertain the other person's point of view. And so I like your comment about how this lays out like in a sequence, it doesn't work. 
even if you win, you get nothing. There's no prize. It's like your partner who lost isn't like handing you a trophy. You just hurt the person you like love most. (laughs) Yeah. Feels wonderful. That's something that I think we have to own a bit. And then that idea of the bravery and and holding space and, and like maybe exploring that option and saying that's how they hear that thing. And then figuring out what's behind all of that. And then figuring out how to love our partners better by engaging in the kind of communication that makes them feel more loved, not less loved. I feel like that's my trade for comfort. It's something I've been working on for like a year, and I don't know if I've ever actually brought it up in a conversation, but it's my therapist has always been trying to tell me to say, what do you hear me saying? Like at the end of like every conversation, what do you hear me saying? And then when they say something, mirror it back, right? So this is what I'm hearing, this, this, and this, and mirror back what they just said so that you're both understanding each other. It's really hard. It's super hard and and stiff in the beginning, but I think through after a lot of practice, it just becomes part of the conversation. Yeah. And I, I think that we can adopt phrases that help us. One of the phrases, speaking of Brene Brown again, is she says, she uses the phrase, the story I'm making up in my head is the story I'm making up in my head is that you don't love me or that you're think I'm less or you don't think I'm good enough or you don't think I do enough things or whatever it is. And that, I think if we have some phrases, so maybe that's my challenge today on this podcast to say the the trading comfort for growth, the TC4G challenge is to admit that I lack the information. The story I'm making up means I admit I don't know what's actually going on. I'm making up a story implies that I have a fake notion of whatever's happening and that I need you to help me, whoever's on the receiving end, fill in what the intent is and help me understand it because I can't. Can I uh, circle back to something you said earlier? You said, are you somebody that believes everything said means something or sometimes it's meaningless? I don't actually know what I am on that. I know it's not like everything's meaningless. I mean, but sometimes I say things and I don't even like, I'm just like, I don't know. Like the other day, Tommy was saying, I, he asked me something and I just went, yeah. And I said it like that, like, yeah. And I thought I said it like, yeah. (laughs) And, and he like wanted this conversation about the way I say that sometimes is so rude. And I was like, God, it doesn't mean anything. (laughs) How do you balance everything meaning something? And sometimes it means nothing. I think we already come with that perspective on some level. So there's some communication scholars that really favor, like there's deep meaning besides everything that somebody says, like it's all hidden in there and it's revealing all these things. And then other people say, no, people just fire their guns away. Like they're, they're just doing all kinds of messages and people aren't really that thoughtful. I'm probably in the middle in saying, I do think there's mundane things that are said that don't have a lot of intent behind them. We could ascribe it. We could make it up and be like, see, you don't like your mother, you know, or whatever. But it, it like really might be added only by me in my, you know, it ha- there's no business of it having any meaning. So I think though, how you and I interface with these different relationship partners, we do need to understand how that partner thinks about messages and whether they think everything means something versus not. Because it would be way easier to be in a relationship where not everything meant something catastrophic all the time. 
it's sort of to your point, Meredith, about the just let's view it more positively. So I could view that there's some meaning in some things, there's some meaning in not things, but also let's give people the benefit of the doubt. Or let's do what Taylor said, which is believe everyone's doing their best. And then if I have that framework, I can handle the nuances better. So what would you say is your, is your TC4G, Merida? Oh, I've really been thinking about this a lot this week. I think it's too, well, you kind of wrecked it with that question though. Like the, what are you hearing from me? You know, I mean, cause I'm making my, my TC4G, my, I was trading my comfort for growth in my own self. I wasn't going to lean into the person that was listening, you know, but that makes so much more sense. At first, my thought of this was my tone of voice. My tone really affects when I listen to somebody, I listen to their tone of voice, you know, somebody's being constructively critical of me and they're doing it respectfully or gentle or they're not like calling me names while they're doing it, then I want to listen, you know, if I want to get better and I trust this person, right? So it makes me think of my tone of voice a lot, this intention, like how, you know, and especially with, I don't have that much of patience. And so like when I tell my partner, turn this way or whatever, you know, to watch my tone. But now I feel like it's going to be to ask them Ask the person, especially, it has to be with somebody I trust, number one. Ask them how they hear me. And then maybe just learn from the people that are actually listening to me without feeling like poop at the end of it. And then can you follow up or is that just kind of a cop out by saying, well, this is what my intention is and just clearly lay that out? Oh, I think you can definitely do that. I just don't know that we always know our intention or can speak coherently about it, which is a funny part about communication that you and I can do it and then be like, I don't know what I meant by that. Huh. (laughs) Or sometimes, or the worst discovery is like where we say something and we go, oh my God, that's what I think. Oh yeah. I just, I just laid it out and it's sitting there and now it's sitting there. Do you always give somebody the benefit of the doubt to explain what they intended? If they're close and you trust them, like Taylor, if you said something kind of cutting, I would be like, yo, that was mean. I would say that feels judgy. I feel judged by you, Meredith. Was that your intent? This moment, yes. <laughs> but I would hope that if you have a trusting relationship, you allow the space for that other person to correct themselves. Right. Or you want, cause don't you, we want to be, I mean, if I, in, in that moment when I was like, I didn't mean it like that, you know, in the car and instead, and maybe leaning and asking, yeah, how did you hear me? I want to learn to do it better. I don't want to keep just having the same tone of voice and keep being, you know, talking like this. So can I get a shot at redoing it and saying, Oh, sorry, you know, let me try it this way. I was just trying to help you not answer the phone because I don't want you to take it because usually I've seen cops over here or something. Can, can we get a reshot at it? You could have code with your partner and say, hey, can we redo that? Take two. Oh, I like that one. Oh, take two. I like take two. I'm going to take that one. Take two. I messed that up one map. Maybe it would sound like what I should have said is, 
or a better way to say it would be, or what I want to be saying to you is kind of repair it as you say it. I used to get in a lot of arguments with Ralph in the cart too. And really my intent is for our safety and for you to not have to pay money on a ticket. So this is why I'm asking you to just please stop before the white line. That drives me nuts. Please stop. Yes. Okay, so I was right. So I didn't need, yeah. Okay, got it. I won. I won. (laughs) Okay, so I don't think that's what Taylor intended. I don't think she was trying to say you're right about everything, Meredith. I believe. (laughs) I got you, girl. I got you. I'll always have your back. Oh, so good. Well, I like it. We've got a lot to work on. I feel like I could talk about this for days. Well, we're going to have another chance because we have another podcast coming up on how to respond non-defensively, which is going to be the cousin of this topic, I think. So I will look forward to seeing you all then. Have a great week, everyone. And we'll see you next time on our podcast, Asking for a Friend. Let us know what you thought of the episode. Our email is hello at afafpodcast.com. This show is for educational purposes only and is copyrighted. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting. Thanks for listening to Asking for a Friend with Talk Talk.